Hello again, listeners, and welcome back to Views from the Crow's Nest, a podcast about emerging trends in finance, technology, and various other domains of the business sector. This podcast is produced in-house for Fisher Jordan. We are a New York-based consulting thought leadership and outsourcing firm helping business leaders exchange complexity for clarity. We use rigorous data analytics, specialized staffing, and tailored technology solutions to deliver workable strategies for clients in financial services and healthcare. Find out more about Fisher Jordan online at fisherjordan.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N.com. So the podcast may be called Views from the Crow's Nest, but this series is called The Monday Mess Hall, which is something that we've started somewhat recently with a few guidelines in mind. First, it's the Monday mess hall, which means we are trying to record, edit, and release the conversations in the same day. Secondly, our full-length episodes are more of the classic interview style with subject matter experts, but we wanted the conversations on the mess hall to be a little more off the cuff, while also focusing more on current events or hot-button topics that are even more specific than the trends we discuss in our longer-form episodes. We only give ourselves a few hours to research the topics ahead of time, because although expertise is welcome, the conversation is the point on the mess hall, not necessarily finding solutions. Currently, the Monday mess hall conversations are between Fisher Jordan team members, but if you would like to get in on this, please reach out to us at engage at fisherjordan.com. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome to the mess hall here on Views from the Crow's Nest. Welcome to you both. Thanks again for being back on the Monday Mess Hall. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. Breaking the rules a little bit here where we're not recording on a Monday. Uh, We're recording in advance. Still coming out on Monday, but recording earlier. I want to talk uh, a little bit about our new structure that um, we're going to be following for these episodes. It's kind of been in place already. We just haven't really named it. We open up with something that's more of a quick take or an icebreaker, and then we really have like the the meatiest, uh, the big dig, we'll call it, uh, topic in in the middle, um, and then we kind of close things out with another more conceptual, um, high level review. Um, so that's kind of the structure that a, a lot of our uh, topics are going to go against um, in episodes coming up and uh episode today so we'll kick things off with our quick take here the topic then is daylight savings time always never or as is on tuesday the 15th of march uh, the u.s senate passed a nearly unanimous bill to make daylight savings time permanent in the u.s and i double checked before we recorded here it looks like this still has not gotten past uh, the house of representatives so um it's probably going to be a little bit before that happens uh, unless that meets with similar a similarly unanimous vote um i don't think this would go into effect until 2023 and i think that the fact that we're doing this episode out of our usual schedule and everybody's on a different time zone as we speak uh, makes this particularly relevant i want us to discuss today how would permanent daylight savings time impact commerce with other countries uh, let alone here in the u.s I'd be very I'd be the first person celebrating if we stuck to one or the other, whether it's the daylight savings or the standard time. The the moving the clock thing, you know, it's a very agrarian society kind of thing. Uh, I think it was Ben Franklin who originally proposed it actually, if I'm not mistaken, or mm-hmm. 
on the US side, maybe there were people on the European side who proposed it before that. It's not what you would call a novel, cutting edge, technologically front-running kind of idea. Mm -hmm. I think that it ended up getting a lot of adoption by most countries, I think, in, during World War I, um, when I think countries were looking for ways to save energy costs, if I'm not mistaken. So they, they were trying to get people during the winter months to the factory a little bit later in the day so that the sun can, can do some of the job of warming up the factory floor. At least that's my understanding. But however you slice it, it seems to be a pretty outdated practice with very little upside and a lot of nuisance value as far as I'm concerned, at least. I'm also looking at a map of countries that either currently observe, formally observed, or never observed. And it basically looks like the U.S. and a few other randos. So it's almost like we'd be getting on the same level as other countries if we either did away with it or kind of committed. So if we see the restaurants, the retail shops, the leisure activity clubs, the golf clubs, they would, I think they might actually benefit from the extra hour of daylight in the evenings. And if we see there was a report by JP Morgan, which said that shorter days actually lead to shorter budgets for consumers. So they found that consumers actually spend 3.5% less in grocery stores and retail stores. Uh, in the month following the end of daylight savings time. So that is why many federations like the National Retail Federation or the U.S. Chamber of Commerce actually strongly support daylight savings time. Well, and then on the other side of the fence, you have all the psychologists who say that the human body is much more suited towards the standard time. So that they're like, yes, pick one, but don't make it daylight saving, make it the standard time. But what both sides ignore is, is that Whichever you choose is going to be better than the status quo. This is where you, you let uh, per perfection be the enemy of uh, common sense or whatever. I think that if I had to pick, uh, I'd be in favor of standard time, I think, for the reasons that you just brought up, Boaz. Like, there's a non-trivial amount of research out there about uh, the, the physiological and psychological benefits of sticking to standard time because it more closely mirrors the human circadian rhythm it sounds like there are compelling cases to be made for either but i i think where we're coming down is it sounds like anything's better than the back and forth like pick a lane right to me the the one thing this whole debate has kind of overlooked a little bit is the fact that time zones in general are are kind of a dying thing mm. So Deba and I work pretty closely. Deba's in India, I'm in New York. Between us, we probably spend more time translating between the India time zone and the Eastern time zone. And frankly, I don't work normal hours for New York and I'm 100% sure Deba doesn't work normal hours for India. So to me, the question, the bigger question is why, why not just move everyone to GMT and get it over with? I don't even know what that would look like. You have a meeting. You agree when the meeting is going to be. Why does it have to? Why do you have to agree on three different time zones? You could just agree on like let's meet at GMT plus seven or whatever the the right number is, and then everyone can can figure out what that means for them and and move on with it. Because I don't think I think the idea of a nine to five work schedule is kind of a uh, quickly vanishing concept as far as as far as I can tell. That's really interesting. I think I like that. We'll write a letter to Congress 
and we'll see if we can get everybody switched to GMT instead. That I think that's, yeah, that's then you the can solution. Say, you can greet people and just say happy 1 p.m. GMT to everyone. And <laughs> Great. Everyone, everyone can translate that for themselves. I think we've this is our first like actual solution we've had on this podcast. Normally we say it's just about the conversation and we don't we're not here to solve anything, but we might have solved this. With that then I think we can move on. Seriously though, I appreciate your guys' uh input on that and it's it's weird and it's interesting and I'm I I'm curious to see what happens with it. But yeah, I do want to pivot here into our our big and main topic for uh today. I think it successfully builds on uh, something that we talked about with Neat on our last um, episode. In in that context, we were talking about the maybe rethinking the way we think of sanctions, but we're going to continue to delve into this uh, topic of the power of the private sector to affect change um, on a sociopolitical scale. Um, so here is our background. Uh, and as always, we're linking uh, any of the articles that we uh, either looked into or, or reference. Uh, we're linking those in the, the show notes. Essentially, we're starting to see with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, we're starting to see um, consumers in particular, but you also see employees and more basically pushing for something more than lip service and investigating behind the scenes actions of companies that they either purchase from or work for beyond spoken stances of solidarity on social media. And right now, this is this conversation is starting because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but you can really extrapolate it to any other current and uh, highly contentious topic. It takes very little effort to make a statement like that on your corporate social media. And we're starting to see people saying, yeah, but what else are you doing? This is, I think, a logical progression of what you could expect to see with uh, the private sector making statements on social activism. So here's where I want us to discuss here. Um, you, you can comment on anything that I just said, but amid some research that our own firm is doing on the financial impacts of a company's philanthropic activity, do we anticipate social activism becoming a core part of organizational strategy in years to come rather than just something that you kind of comment on when it's current and then everything else is just business as usual um so intentionally there's a lot to unpack there so kind of jump in wherever you want and let's see where this goes so if we start with the Russia-Ukraine crisis, so BP actually was the first one to seize their operations there, which was followed by many other companies. So over 250 companies now have seized their operations in Russia. And that includes companies from varied sectors like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan from the financial industries or from the tech side. It can be Amazon, YouTube, Netflix, or the hotel industries like Marriott. And uh, stakeholders today are they, they are expecting a genuine social media activism from these companies. So there has been a report, which is the Eldman Earned Brand Report, which actually found that 64% of the consumers worldwide, they are belief-driven consumers. So they actually want companies to take a stand on social issues. So about two-thirds of the consumers, they won't buy a company's product if the company has stayed silent on an issue which it had an obligation to address. And they would actually buy the company's product for the first time because of the position that it took on a particular issue. 
So if we see on a similar page, like uh, many of the fast food restaurant companies like KFC and Starbucks, they ceased their operations in Russia and companies like McDonald's did not. There were actually boycott calls on Twitter for them and that actually forced the company to cease their operations temporarily in Russia. So everybody today wants a genuine interest on the company's side to not only just comment something, but actually take some concrete action on social and uh, the environment and goals that are happening. I agree the kind of the level of corporate involvement specifically in this uh, sanctions regime against Russia um, in the wake of the Ukraine invasion has been unprecedented not only in its in its scope and scale but also in um, how quickly or, or in some cases even concurrently it happened um, with the government imposed sanctions um, now you could always ask the question was it primarily motivated by consumer pressure or was it primarily motivated by government pressure so i think that part remains a question mark and the truth is probably somewhere in between but um it's certainly undeniable that that there's been kind of a sea change in this latest sanctions regime in terms of the level and quickness of the corporate involvement um this is maybe a bit of a sideways comparison here but i want to explore this thought for a little bit i'm thinking about the evolution of it how uh, it initially was not like a differentiator for companies it was an appendage it wasn't like a core asset of a company and that has obviously changed now where like your your digital capability the strength or weakness of that determines your ability to compete in the 21st century marketplace. And I'm wondering if with trends like this, we will start to see right now, I, I guess I would just call them like social activist teams um, becoming like, again, like a, a core part of your, of your organizational strategy, where rather than being something that is a job that's given to maybe your Maybe it's it's given right now to larger firms that have like a PR presence, like that's that they handle it. But I'm just wondering if it starts to become like a core capability. I don't know if you guys see that happening where it's like we have our our social team that then uh, as social media power grows as well, then like maybe that gets subsumed into it. But I am definitely wondering about that as it starts to become more and more important where companies say they stand and also like what they're doing to back it up that you might actually see like an actual strategic component emerge for it again something like it once meant one thing and then it gradually expanded to become something much different as as the market changed around it does that make sense to you too i mean i, I think so nathan i think maybe what you're trying to say is is this a new core capability that organizations need to become more deliberate about about creating and maintaining and when when i say it i'm talking about responsiveness to consumer and social priorities whatever they may be mm -hmm. you're certainly seeing more and more of it the question is this is kind of the age-old question of corporate governance right so on the one hand you have the the milton friedman school 
um, you know, famous economist from University of Chicago, one of the founders of monetary theory, who, you know, very clearly, explicitly stated that the sole responsibility of a company is to generate profits and that everything else should be supplied by the social and the political realm. So that's kind of one one extreme. And then you have the other extreme, or maybe not an extreme, but may, maybe a more kind of mitigated viewpoint, which um, let a lot of people, including, let's say, Peter Drucker, the famous management theorist, have, have, have stated that a company is essentially a social entity. And in order to have permission from the society in which it operates to continue operating, it needs to also prioritize um, the things that are important to that society. So those are kind of the two viewpoints. Um, I don't know that it's clear which one will emerge or assuming it's a happy medium, kind of where along the spectrum we're going to come out. But I think Nathan, to your point, it is going to continue to be something that companies need to, need to be more deliberate about addressing. And I agree with you that it's more of becoming, not like an afterthought kind of a work team, but more on an ongoing basis. So consumers today, or not only consumers, but employees, everybody first goes on and checks how the companies are doing on their social media channels, uh, not only when a particular issue of social justice arises, but uh, like for on the climate uh, goals, things or on sustainability, on generating awareness or doing or creating value on those respects. So people go and check their social media channels and whatever sentiments are kind of flowing through those. Based on that, they make their next decisions. Yeah, I agree with, with both of you. Boaz, I'm definitely echoing your sentiment as well of it's not clear which one is going to emerge, but there's there's a, a shift happening that we're observing. And um, it's interesting that we get to comment on it as well. One additional point. So, so if you look at this conceptually, you could characterize it as kind of a secular trend moving in a direction of democratizing corporate governance, kind of at, a, at its most abstract level, you could describe it that way. Why? Because we're talking about decisions that are generally done at, at the board level or at least at the C-level, large decisions like where do you source your raw materials, what kind of environmental standards do you impose on your suppliers, how do you cooperate with sanctions regimes against bad actors or people who, who may be considered to be bad actors. And the reason it's democratization is because you're allowing more voices into the conversation than used to be the case, right? Like a, a corporate board used to have its meetings, they'd, they'd have a shareholders meeting once a year and, and that was it. And the rest of the decisions happened behind closed doors. And now a lot of them are happening on Twitter and Instagram, right? You could say, well, that's great. Corporate governance should be democratized because in a lot of cases, companies, especially the big ones, um, wield a lot more power than a lot of a lot of government bodies do, right? And if our goal is to kind of tr- try to impose democratic standards on our government, then why not on on our companies as well? The flip side of that is it's it's not actually a strict democracy because the loudest voices on Twitter and Instagram are not always representative of the majority of the voices in the, in the country. In fact, you saw that you know one one of the storylines that's emerging with the whole Russia-Ukraine conflict is that for the last 10 or 15 years, Russia has been systematically sponsoring extreme environmental voices on social media and even kind of, you know, with real world actions that they've taken 
in an attempt to get the US and Europe to stop um, trying to become energy independent and thereby creating independency on Russian oil, which then allows Russia more flexibility in its in its political and military activities. And that's, I think that's been pretty as clearly established now with a lot of evidence from a lot of different sources. And you can see there that something that seemed like it was a big social media trend, something very democratic, that people are demanding more environmental action because they don't want to see global warming at the end of the day actually turns out to not necessarily be representative of the majority of the voices. So we need to be careful about using generalities and, and saying, oh, yeah, we're going to democratize the, the boardroom and all that stuff versus the reality of it, which is that in a lot of cases, these things are dominated by a minority of voices with either good bankrolls or just very loud voices in general. So we need to we need to kind of be careful with with using generalities to talk about these kinds of trends, I think. Absolutely. As with any change, right, making sure that you don't accidentally swing the pendulum too far in the opposite direction, and then you end up with just unchecked chaos. So definitely hear you there. Our last topic is a little bit of a sort of a microcosm of, of this sort of thing. Here we're talking about the, the social aspects of companies. And I'd like to talk uh, for our closer about um, the ways that analytics can actually be a part of this kind of work. Uh, again, we have background for this. Uh, Reseller News released a list of top three trends that they believe will dominate data analytics in 2022. Just came out here uh, within the last week as we close out quarter one. Data analytics, of course, is a uh, developing discipline um, that I, th I think we've only just begun to see the beginning of the capability of. But some of these trends that they're surmising on will just continue to drive this uh, discipline deeper into the critical processes of modern companies. So one of these trends is using data analytics to drive greater environmental efficiency. So our discussion for this last topic here uh, similar to this discussion about social awareness becoming a core profitability factor for companies, do we anticipate analytics being used in other creative ways to help companies become more aligned with social or environmental initiatives? So data is currently leveraged to solve different problems like personalizing customer experiences, forecasting demands, detecting frauds. But the same principles can be applied to a number of environment and social problems as well. Like if we see during the pandemic, the healthcare communities used the real-time mobile data to track the global response to the pandemic using machine learning. Similarly, there have been attempts to use the traffic statistics to gauge air pollution, and scientists have been using radar data to actually uncover patterns in avian migratory movements to avoid bird collisions. So data and sustainability and environment goals, they're actually a potent combination. There has been a study that even a 1% improvement in efficiency in healthcare and power and retail and all these sustainability related goals could actually save more than 270 billion in the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah, certainly data will, will play an increasing role. The, this particular article, Nathan, that you mentioned, I thought was interesting. I think it was in the, um, the reseller magazine out of New Zealand. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting take on it because what they describe as data analytics, I wouldn't necessarily strictly qualify it as data analytics. It's, it is data related in that I think the example they gave was 
you know, a factory is gener generating a lot of waste steam and they, they kind of have a digital equivalent or digital twin for the factory and then they can use that to kind of track down the sources of that steam and then harness it to, to do something productive. So it is kind of data enablement and and automation related and and just trying to maximize the the benefits of of the information that you have or even generating new sources of information whether it's strictly data analytics or not may or may not be relevant but um you know certainly yeah i think that the trend to to increase digitization and kind of use that to drive decision making is certainly going to be applicable in the um in the environmental case as well yeah, that's an interesting line drawn uh, between data analytics and data enablement. Um, I'm also curious about the creation of more and more granular roles that are within this discipline. Maybe you've got like subdivisions of like a data strategy unit that as the capability grows, then you start to have further and further differentiation. Uh, some of these are kind of over here in this domain, worrying about sustainability. Some of them are over here looking at profitability, analytics as a whole continuing to grow. That article as a whole is worth a read. The The other two trends for what it's worth, again, maybe these fit more under data enablement rather than data analytics, but the other two that were in that article that we're referencing were relative to supply chain analytics. Certainly seen plenty of uh, use cases for that uh, over the last couple of years here, different vulnerabilities exposed. So we'll probably see some, some growing um, capabilities there uh, to kind of anticipate and shore up some of those potential weak spots. And then um, the uh, last trend they identified was organizations assigning real value to their data. So yeah, I think that's that's accurate, Boaz, that maybe we think more of this as like data enablement, but certainly wanting to keep an eye on things in the world of data analytics as a as a firm that lists that as one of our several specialties here. Yeah, I, I personally think all three of those trends are very interesting, Nathan. Can I legitimately say these are going to be the biggest things in the coming year. I think that's kind of open to debate. I would say they're all probably going to be very, very big trends over the next five to 10 years. Um, and they're, they're all pretty early on in the development. Like, a, you know, a company's understanding of its own supply chain, as, as the article points out, these days is, is extremely poor. If, like, if they have a good understanding at the first level, they're, they're already kind of ahead of the game, let alone one or two levels below that. But then when you, when you pop it out and say, okay, so, so that's, that's a company's own in, internal understanding of their supply chain. Now look at one level out and say, what's their investor's understanding of, of the company's supply chain? It becomes even less than that. So I think there's a lot of growth in that area. I also think that the you know the idea of um, assigning value to data, or you could call it data monetization, is also something that's very very early on. A lot of a lot of the clients that we work with and talk to have proprietary data assets that they leverage to their own advantage, and and they know kind of implicitly could could be used by other organizations and has real market value, but have no idea how to monetize it. So I, I can see all, all three of these trends being very significant over the next five to 10 years and beyond. Well, thank you to you both again for being a part of uh, this irregularly scheduled mess hall episode. Always value the conversation. 
looking forward to uh, the next one that we have in two weeks here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's it for this episode of Views from the Crow's Nest. As with any other podcast, if you enjoyed what you heard here today, we would appreciate it if you left some sort of rating or review on your podcast app of choice, or you can share it with a friend or colleague if you think that they would enjoy the content that we are discussing here. My name is Nathan Johnson. From all of us here at Fisher Jordan, thank you for listening, and we will see you from the Crow's Nest. Mm